Queen and for those that have provided the accompaniment. Thank you so much for that. Um, Benita, I'm thinking your Fitbit is going to have lots of steps down today, so um, thank you for all that you've done. We've heard a little bit of the introduction uh, just through that song, but um, as we introduce our sermon time this morning, I thought maybe we'd do it in a little bit different fashion, and we're going to do it in the form of a responsive reading. And so it'll show up on the screen. Um, it'll be easy to figure out. The part that says leader, that would be me. Um, the part that says congregation, that would be you. Um, and it's taken from the Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter, just a portion of that description of that first Easter morn. But let's do this in a responsive manner this day. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They rolled stone, rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why are you looking, living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words, and they came back from the tomb. They told all of these things to the eleven and to the elders. Very good. Thank you. This morning, I want to start by showing you a picture. Now, some of you will recognize this picture. Uh, others of you will not. But for those of you that do recognize it, I don't want you to shout out what it is, okay? Um, I, I will ask if you recognize the picture for you to put your hand up in the air, but don't shout out um, what, what it is that you're seeing. Okay, here comes the picture. You're going to have to help me, Ed. Here comes the picture. There we go. All right, so who here recognizes this picture? Uh, just a very few, actually. Um, uh, this is actually a, a picture, as you probably figured, uh, of a hockey team. It has to do with the Olympics, the 1980 Olympics that were held in Lake Placid, New York. And this is the U.S. Olympic team that you see before you there, 1980. Now, uh, it was kind of an exciting year for our Olympic program, especially for the guys. They had an opportunity to actually win a medal. That was not always the case with our men's team, but this year that was a possibility. Though uh, none of the individuals in this picture, nor really anyone else on the face of the earth, was under the illusion that this team could win the gold. They made it to the medal round, but there was no chance that they could win the gold because everyone knew who was going to win the gold, and that was the Soviet Union. And I don't know why this isn't working. Ed, thank you. Um, the Soviet Union was a game-winning machine at this point in time. Back in the, in the 1980, uh, professionals were not allowed to participate in the Olympics, and so uh, these individuals who were part of the Russian army um, and just happened to play hockey all year round, seven days a week, 52 uh, weeks a year. And so they were just 
by far the dominant force uh, in the hockey world. They just almost never lost. And part of it was because not only did they have great players, but they had everything that a nation like uh, Soviet Union could provide. Best of coaches, best of equipment, best of facilities, best of resources. They had it all. And so they would go around and, and play uh, teams from other nations, and they just decimated uh, those teams. Everyone knew that the Soviet team was going to be the team that was going to take home the gold after they all uh, they had done it in all of the years prior in the Olympics. The U.S. team, on the other hand, was a different story. Um, we had no uh, professionals on our team. Again, they weren't allowed. Uh, there was only four individuals um, who had uh, even played in sort of a, a semi-pro capacity. And so what had happened is all of the players that we had on our team were individuals that were playing college hockey. They didn't have this experience. They didn't have the maturity. They hadn't played together very much. Uh, the coach was a good coach, but not a, a phenomenal coach. And so they were just happy to have made it to the gold or, or to the, the medal round. But again, no one was under the illusion that they could win the gold. And, and I'm just to drive this home, I know I'm spending a little bit of time on this, but I just want to make sure that you understand it wasn't that they shouldn't win the gold. It's what it was that they couldn't win the gold. There was just no way uh, for that to happen. To, to do a, to have that, for that to have occurred, it would have meant um, disrupting the laws of the universe. There was just no way that could occur. And just to give you a, an example of, of how dominant the Soviet team was, uh, just the year before the Olympics in 1979, they had uh, played the NHL, best players in the world, they played the NHL's all-star team in a short tournament, and they had beat that team handily uh, two games to one. There was just no way that they could not win. And yet, on February 22nd, 1980, that's exactly what happened. The U.S. Olympic team beat the Soviet Union. Now you're saying, but, but how could that happen, Pastor? You just said it was impossible. I did, but what do we call things that are impossible that occur? We call them miracles. And it has been known since that day as the miracle on ice. How profound, how iconic was this event? Well, Sports Illustrated, the, the magazine that tracks all of the sports, uh, looked back over the 20th century and it said that this game was the preeminent sporting event for, uh, for the 20th century. Even the International uh, Hockey Federation has said at their 100-year anniversary that of all the games that had been played in that first hundred years, this was the most profound. It was an incredible event. It was, by all uh, accounts, a miracle. Now, we're not going to spend our time talking about uh, hockey this morning, but I wanted to lay a, a foundation of, of miracles because I want to talk about a different miracle today. It is, Ed, if you could do the next slide, it is the miracle of the tomb. The miracle of the empty tomb, I guess, to be specific. And it was a miracle because it couldn't happen, right? There's just no way that could take place. Jesus had died. He'd been put in the tomb. And when people are put in the tomb, that's where they stay. You lay them there in the, in the crypt, and, and the remains are there and, until they sort of disappear for the remainder of time. But that's not what happened that first Easter morn. Jesus came back from the dead. 
But again, you can't do that. We, we, we know that that just never occurs. We think of that great quote from Benjamin Franklin who said, there's only two things certain in this life, death and taxes. You just don't ever come back. You're born, you live, you die, period. That's it. But on that first Easter, the impossible happened. On that first Easter, the impossible became possible as Jesus emerged from the tomb victorious over the power of death. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. And as we reflect back on that story, just to look at some things that, that even those of us that have heard the story time and time again have, have maybe forgotten about things. Uh, we begin with that idea of, of the fact that, um, you know, when we think about Easter, everybody's smiling, everybody's joyful, which is the way it ought to be. My technical assistant is going to try to get things <laughs> fixed here. Um, is the way things ought to be. But before there was the celebration of Easter, before the women went to the tomb, before the, the disciples ran there afterwards, when they woke up that morning, it was not a good morning. Because the way things were when they woke up was the way things had been when they went to bed. Their Lord, their Savior, their Messiah had been killed and put into a tomb. And for the women and for the disciples and others that knew Jesus, it, it wasn't just the loss of a friend. It was the, uh, the loss of a rabbi, of a teacher, of a mentor, increasingly a one that they came to view as the Messiah. But Messiahs don't die, do they? And so the worlds were turned upside down. And so they were discouraged and despondent. Everything that they had invested their lives in for these past three years uh, seems to have, uh, have gone in the wrong direction. And I mention this because the truth is that while I hope this Easter has been joyous and will be for the remainder of the day, uh, we live in the midst of, of lives that aren't always um, as joyous as Easter afternoons are. We live in a real world where there's struggles and challenges and difficulties. For some of you, maybe that has to do with, with relationships that have been fractured. Uh, that, that they're leaving you lonely and uh, with a sense of abandonment. Got it? I'm not sure. Nope. But thank you for trying, Tanya. We appreciate that. Um, and Ed, I'm sorry to give you extra work today, but I'll just keep pointing, and if you'll keep clicking, we'll get this done. Um, so they, uh, for some of you, there's that sense of, of, of feeling uh, lonely and... and um, maybe even having your, your relationships fractured. Uh, for others, you, you wrestle with things in your life, addictions, habits, that you just can't break free of. And it's not for lack of trying, and it's not for lack of want. You're just not able to find a release from those things. For some of you, you're overwhelmed at work, or you wish you had work, or you wish at least that you had a different kind of work. For some, you're stressed about what awaits at the end of school. You put in all these years getting ready for things, and now you've got to move out on your own. But, but what's that going to look like? For some, there's been some events in your life that have led to deep shame or guilt or embarrassment, and you just can't let go of that. Uh, for others, maybe it's a, a financial burden that rests on your shoulders, and it's, it's so significant in your life that it weighs on your thoughts every waking moment of every day. 
The reality is that we live in a world where life is hard. Jesus, in fact, spoke about that very thing. In the Gospel of John, the 16th chapter, the 33rd verse, we read these words. Jesus speaking here. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But in the world you will have tribulation. Not you might have, it's going to be there, folks. And, and that's not a surprise to all of us. We've all experienced it. We've all gone through those challenges, those hardships, those struggles. Um, and we've talked about how that might look already, but it can come in other forms. Uh, it, it can come in the form of, of uh, maybe medical issues that you have been wrestling with. Medical issues that just seem to come uh, one after uh, another for you. Maybe it has to do with estrangement from family members. Maybe it's worry about the, the big things that surround us in the world. Things like pandemics or, or wars or, or weather disasters. Or maybe your car's on its last legs or its last tires as it may be. Whatever it might seem... You find that that life can be a struggle. And yet, despite that, the good news is that we're told that we can still experience peace and contentment. And who's going to get us to that place of, of peace and contentment? Well, I'll tell you from my own personal experience, it's not me. And it's probably not you. It's God alone who can do that. You see, within ourselves, we just don't have the, the energy, the resources to be able to uh, accomplish that. Now, we may be able to get past one disaster or one a crisis, but, but what happens is there's seasons in our life, and I think everyone goes through this, where those crises, those, those difficulties just seem to come one after another after another, kind of like the waves of an ocean. If you've ever stood there by the, the seaside, you've seen those. They, they just crash, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. Before you even get your head above the water to take a breath from the previous one, another one's coming down on you. In our energy and in our power, we can't do that. And so how do we respond? Well, we can crawl up in a fetal ball in the corner and hope it'll go away, but it never does, does it? Or maybe we have a sense of, of feeling good for just a moment by blaming others. We get angry and we blame the world. Or, or maybe we blame God even though we know it's not his fault. Or... Or rather than blaming God, we turn to God and look to God and lean on God. Because when we've reached these moments, he really is the only one we can lean on. If we go back to the text we read just a moment in First John 16, it says there that if in me you will have peace. And Ed, if you'll go to the next slide, I think. Um... In me, you may have peace. Where do we find that peace? Even in the midst of tribulation, Jesus says, in me, you can find peace. But when that tribulation comes, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. There is no difficulty. There is no challenge. There is no hardship that you will confront that Christ cannot get you through. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be painless, but I am saying that with Christ's help, it's not only possible, it will happen. God can help us to get through those things. 
So remember, even for the, the disciples, Easter didn't start off a great day. It, it moved into becoming a great day and can be the same way for us. A second, we see that despite those difficulties and challenges of, of, of starting the day in a kind of a despondent manner, that the disciples continued to love Jesus, even though they didn't understand everything that was taking place. Similar to what we've already sung about and, and read about in just a moment ago, uh, it, we read in, in Mark 16 where it talks about um, that first Sabbath or that first Easter uh, when the women were going. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. It's, it's Sunday now. They couldn't do it on Saturday because Saturday is the Sabbath uh, for the Jewish community. You couldn't do things on, on the Sabbath. So they had to make one more day. And it would have been easy for them just to ignore it, wouldn't it? I mean, these were nice women, obviously, but Jesus, he was supposed to be the Messiah. And he's lying in the tomb. It would have been so easy for them to, to have just ignored or, or, or acted on that sense of feeling abandoned by him or maybe even deceived by Jesus just to, to have left him there on his own. But they didn't because they chose to care for Jesus in death in the same way that he had cared for them in life. You see, the truth is that, that just because we don't understand how God is at work doesn't mean that God's not at work or that we should turn away from him. Remember, God's God and, and we're not. Um, he's the creator. We're the, we're the creation. His ways are not our ways. And so, and so we're not always going to understand everything that God is doing. He has the big picture view. We have this little, little bitty perspective from where we are. But we learn a great truth from the women there. And that is even when we don't understand, we continue to believe. In fact, if you um, look at the text here, in John 20, verses 8 and 9, it says this. Talking here about after the women had come back and told the disciples uh, that the tomb was empty, we read that the two of the disciples, uh, John and Peter, went to the tomb. It says, finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, even though they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And there's such a rich insight that's, that's in this one verse. They didn't understand, but they believed. They didn't understand everything that's happening. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Messiahs aren't supposed to, uh, to die, but they still believed. And isn't that what faith really is? It's described for us in Hebrews. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It doesn't mean that we, we, we follow God blindly. There's all kinds of supportive evidence that, that undergirds our faith. But there are times when we just have to trust. We have to trust that what God is doing is in our best interest. Trust that what God is doing is going to help further the work of his kingdom. They didn't understand, but they believed. Which moves us to the final point I want to touch on this morning, and it's simply this, that, and that everything changed when the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus. Everything changed when that happened. And by everything, what do I mean? Well, I mean everything is in past, present, and future. It's even the past changed. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how did that occur? 
I mean, as, as, as Christians, we don't have a spiritual time machine that allows us to go back and undo things that we said or, or things that we did or maybe even thoughts that we had. How can God change the past? Well, he can't necessarily change the, the, the occurrences that have taken place, but he can change the impact of those occurrences. C.S. Lewis, uh, who is one of my favorite authors, has a great quote, and in that quote he says this, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And I love that because so often in our lives we want to try to focus on what's happened in the, in the past and get so caught up in that uh, we get consumed. C.S. Lewis is saying, don't, don't worry about that. Start where you're at now and, and change what lies in eternity. That we can have some influence over. And I love this quote, but, but I would just add one little kind of tweak to it and would say that, that we can change a little bit our past. Again, not the actual events, but we can, we can change the impact of it. Now think of it in, in, in these terms. Imagine that you are in an intense argument with somebody. Uh, you're just shouting and yelling at one another. They know all the buttons to push in you, and so they're saying all the things to get you riled up. And finally, in a moment of frustration and anger, you pop them in the kisser. Now, you're not supposed to do that. I don't want you to hear me saying that's a good thing. That's not what Pastor Brett's saying this morning. But this guy just cannot uh, help from, from doing that. There's no way for us to go back and undo that. It's sort of a Will Smith moment, isn't it, if you watch the um, uh, Academy Awards? You can't undo that. But there are things that can change the impact of that. If the individual you've hit decides not to press charges, that's going to have a profound impact on the direction your life is going to move after that. We can't necessarily change the events themselves, but, but we can change the impact. And how does that happen? Well, it's revealed to us in the wonderful words of Colossians 2.13 that says this. When you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, which is true for all of us before we become Christians, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. And he forgave all our sins. Does that mean our sins now? Yeah. Our sins in the future? Yeah. Our sins in the past? Yes. We can't change the things that we said. We can't change the things that we did or thought. Those things that maybe were, were dishonoring to God, those things that maybe were, were hurtful to others. But we can change the impact of that, at least in a spiritual sense. We can change the, 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 the outcome that we should experience, which is one of, of judgment of God, of separation, eternal separation from him, because instead, the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus, means that we are forgiven. We are forgiven of those things that have happened in the past. And so when I talk about it changing everything, I, do I mean the past? Yes, but not just the past. The resurrection also changes the present. It also changes the present. In the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, the 10th verse, we read this, Jesus speaking here. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, the thief being Satan or the evil one. But I, Jesus, have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Some translations use the word abundantly or in abundance with that. And when he talks about abundantly, he's not talking about God granting us every whim or desire that we might have for stuff or things. But instead, that God will provide us that which is truly important, 
He'll give us within our hearts and our lives a sense of peace and of joy and of contentment. He'll give us a, a sense of purpose and direction for our lives. Paul describes it this way in, in Acts 20 when he reflects on his own life and, and says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete, and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's what God's called us to. That's what God makes uh, available to us. You see, uh, unlike what the world will tell us, which is the, the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you'll die kind of way of living, God says there's something better. In fact, a lot better. A life where you can uh, know uh, joy and peace, contentment, and have direction and purpose in our lives. When we say that, that Easter and the resurrection changed everything, we mean everything. It changed the past. It changes the present. And, and at least for me, the best news of all is it changes the future. It changes our eternity. Because with the tomb being empty with us, inviting Christ into our hearts and our lives, that means that we can know with absolute certainty what eternity holds for us. We don't have to guess. We don't even have to hope. We can know that our eternity is set, that we will be secure with Jesus and all of the saints that have gone before us. Now, that doesn't happen because of, of what we've done. It's what God has done. A passage we frequently look at here at Calvary is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which reminds us of that with these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's not of our own achievements or accomplishments. It's the gift of God, not a result of even good works, so that no one may boast in their own accomplishments. There's nothing that we can do to, to achieve the status before God to give us this guarantee in heaven. All falls to God. But then Jesus reminds us of what happens when we look to God in John 5, 24, where he says this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me, Jesus speaking here, has eternal life. Why? Because they won't be judged but have instead crossed over from eternal death to eternal life. The resurrection changed everything. Our past, our present, our future. And if we ignore that or we forget that or pretend that that didn't happen, then when we look at our faith as Christians, what we we really find ourselves is just a part of a feel-good club of nice people. Paul doesn't beat around the bush and says that very directly in 1 Corinthians 15 with these words. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Why? Because you're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness that's been experienced. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, believing that heaven awaits, they're lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's where the story ended. This would be a pretty discouraging sermon. But it's not where it ends, because if we go to the very next verse there, we read this, that the resurrection did occur. You see, if we pick up at that, that end, uh, we are of all people most to be a pity. That's a terrible ending, but it doesn't stop. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
to which we shout hallelujah. He is risen indeed. Our hearts are filled with a sense of joy because what God has accomplished in that. And folks, the, the evidence for that is, is overwhelming. You look at not only what we find in Scripture, but we write in the Jewish writings of that day and age, of, of secular Roman writings of that day and age. We, we look at the impact that it had on the lives of the people that were around there. The evidence for that is overwhelming. But what does that mean for you, and what does that mean for, for me in our world? It means that God can extraordinarily take something that was initially seen as a setback and turn it into a comeback. In John eleven twenty five and 27, Jesus is having a conversation with Martha. Martha has a sister named Mary. They have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus has just recently died as we get to our text for today. And Jesus has come and eventually will bring Lazarus back to life. But as they're having that discussion and Martha doesn't understand why Jesus waited to, to come, Jesus says to her, you don't have to worry, for I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will truly never die, never die eternally. And then he says to her, to Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And I love how Jesus puts this all together because it gives us such a great perspective of the world in which we live. He begins by saying whoever, that whoever is everybody. That's the entire world. Whoever, and then he shrinks it down a little bit and, and says, among those, uh, those who have faith in him, whoever believes in me, that's the church, actually. Uh, not just Calvary Baptist Church, but churches everywhere, the church universal. So he starts with everyone, and then he brings it down to the smaller group, those who believe. But he doesn't stop there. He goes to that place where the rubber meets the road. And he asks that very personal, very intimate question. He says this, Martha, do you believe? And she responds, yes, Lord, I believe. And that's what Jesus so earnestly wanted to hear. He wanted to hear from her, and he wants to hear from us. Do we believe? Believe in what? Well, believe that, yeah, that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. Believe that he actually did what he came to do, that he does change our past and our present and our future. Folks, we started off this morning by talking about a, a couple of miracles. The first one, that miracle on ice. The second one, the, the miracle of the tomb. But there's a third miracle that I, I want to use as we wrap up, and that's a, a miracle that's not yet been set. Those first two, they're done deals. Miracle on the ice, that's historical fact. A miracle in the tomb, that's historical fact. A miracle in our hearts, that's still something, uh, at least for some, to be determined. Because God gives us the choice. He wants nothing more than for us to be a part of, of his eternal family, his heavenly family, to be in relationship with him now and forever and ever and ever. But he doesn't ever force that on us. He allows us to choose. Now, I know many, maybe even most of you here, 
today, in fact, I think most of you here today, have already made that decision and have been chosen to invite Christ to become a part of your life as, as Lord and Savior. But if you haven't made that choice yet, my guess is it's because you're trying to, to work out life on your own. You're trying to do it in your own power, in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And as you go about that, I guess I would just ask you the question, how's that, how's that going? There's probably some good days. You probably have seasons in life where things are going well. But overall, would you say that your life would be described, marked by joy and peace and contentment? And is there a sense of purpose to your life? You see, for most of us, the answer would be no before we come to know Christ. And if that's true for you, then I guess I would follow up with one additional question. If, if, if the answer isn't in yourself, the more you're going to look. You're going to look to your friends. You can look to the government. How about those celebrities that seem to, to want to be experts in everything in the world? Are they going to provide the answer for you? You see, I think we already know that, that they're going to fall short. Because there is really only one answer to finding those things in life that we want. And the answer is in Jesus. It's always been the case, always will be the case. The only thing we have to decide is, is that going to be our answer or not? Is that going to be the place that we're going to turn or not? Everything changed at the resurrection. But even though it changed for the rest of the world, the question we have to ask is, has it changed in our lives? You see, it may be time for us to stop looking somewhere else and instead start looking to someone else, and that someone being Jesus. He's there for you. He's there for us. All we have to do is invite him in as Lord and Savior. And so what I want to do, and I'll use this kind of as a closing for this morning, is, is uh, at least of the sermon time, uh, to wrap up with the prayer. It's a prayer that many of you have said before, but again, there may be some that haven't. And it's an opportunity for you to invite Jesus into your heart for this Easter to become your first Easter because it's the first time you've really invited Christ into your life It's the first time you've really given him control over all of that that you've tried to hold on to so tightly. And if you prayed that prayer, I just want to tell you in advance, it's not the end of things, folks. Even though God's changed the past, present, and future, it's not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of an incredible life that just gets better and better and better because the Holy Spirit comes into us. And reveals to us all of those things that, that maybe we didn't understand before. He, he begins to shape us in a manner where that, that love and that joy and that peace and that contentment and that purpose become more a part of our lives. And we experience something we would never have experienced otherwise. And so, I'm going to say a prayer. If you want to say this prayer, I invite you just to do so quietly to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. The important thing isn't the words. The important thing is the heart. And so let's pray. If you've already said this prayer, pray for people that maybe have not yet said that prayer. And if you haven't said that prayer and God's prompting you in that direction today, I'd invite you to pray these words with me. Let's pray. Father,
how I thank you for the resurrection and how it can change my past and my present and my future. Forgive me, Lord, for trying to live life on my own. Forgive me for the things that I've done and the things that I've said and the things that I've thought which are contrary to your will and maybe were even hurtful to others. And instead, Lord, come into my heart this day. Lord, become my Savior. For I acknowledge that you alone are the one who could die for my sins. And Lord, begin this day also to become my Lord. That my utmost desire would be to do those things that are pleasing to you and that build up your kingdom. Fill my heart, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And may this adventure that I begin this day exceed my wildest dreams of the joy and of the peace and of the contentment and purpose in life that I can find only through you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.